Good morning, Harlem. Having a great service so far. Let's go to God with the word of prayer. And we are going to jump into our message for today. God in heaven, Father, we want to thank you for giving us a Savior in Christ Jesus. Uh, We want to also thank you for giving us a reason to sing, a reason to believe, a reason to live, a reason to hope, a reason to strive for a better better life. And and God, we pray that you will help uh, my words today to inspire us to take it one step higher, God. Not five, not ten, just one step higher. Because I believe that victory for most of us is right around the corner. It's just one decision away. And I pray that today's words will inspire us to take that one step further, God, because that's all you need to take us to another level. God, I pray that my words will not be offensive to anyone here, but that you will help us to have a great time in your word. And I do pray, Father, that you will help us and those who are standing in in the need of prayer at this time. Father, we do pray for a healing for everyone uh, that we prayed for earlier today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today's message was inspired by a football game. And unfortunately, it was not the Giants. I am a Giants fan. Let me just preface this by saying so. I am a diehard Giants fan and a diehard New York Knicks fan. So, however, today's message was not inspired by the Giants. I'm not that inspired by my team right now. In fact, it was inspired by the New York Jets and Cleveland Browns game. Stop it. Stop. Forgive them, Lord. Now, since there was nothing else on TV a Thursday night, I figured, let me tune into the Jets game. I am a New York fan, all right? I love New York. I also love to root for the underdog. But what do you do when you have two underdogs playing each other? Who do you go for? So I chose New York because I figured I'm a New Yorker. You know, at least let me choose for the New York team. But what really got me interested was the fact that up until Thursday night, the Cleveland Browns had not won a game in two years. Christmas Eve, when they beat the San Diego Chargers in 2016, was the last time they won a football game. Now, stop for a second, church. I know some of us, our athletic years are behind us. That's all right. But imagine if you had not had one good day for two whole years. First of all, this room would be empty. I wouldn't be here because I'm thinking I need to do something about this situation, right? Now, this starting quarterback, Tyrod Taylor, was not having a great game, and you can tell. He was stinking up the place, and everybody else on his team was stinking up the place. It was just one stink team. One, I mean, they were just the attitude. They didn't want to catch the ball. They were dropping easy passes. He didn't really look like he wanted to be there. And so what ended up happening was that he got sacked and he had a concussion and had to come out of the game. And this guy right here, Mayfield, was their number one. He went number one in the draft, the NFL draft pick to the Cleveland Browns. That's one of the messed up things about sports. You can be the best college player and you go to the worst team. 
And so here, the, the fans before, you know, Tyrod got taken out of the game, you can hear people in the stands screaming out, Mayfield, 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 because they were like, oh, my God, this game is terrible. Send in the rookie. It, got, it was so bad that they were chanting for the rookie. They were like, anything but this guy right here. And they got their wish. And so it only took one opportunity. One moment of inspiration, and in this case, one player to inspire his team to victory. As soon as he got on the field, there was a different spirit. He, he just came with a confidence. He was like, oh, this is my one chance. I may not get this again. One time, one play, one pass, one score, and that was it, and he broke this miserable track record of losses. One guy, one opportunity, and he changed and inspired a whole city. Do you think God can use you to do the same thing? You know, I I watched that game, and I'm sitting there thinking, they're about to win this game. And I was like, I'm about to become a Cleveland Browns fan. I mean, I was so caught up in the emotions. I was I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm rooting for the Browns. And I'm like, change your New York, forget all that. I'm rooting for the Browns. And I mean, it was inspiring. And I thought, oh my goodness, I got to preach about this. One guy made a difference. One opportunity he was given, and he made it happen. The title of my message today is simply this, It Only Takes One. It only takes one. Now, this was going to be a typical three-point, but my wife encouraged you, you should make it a series. I said, you know what, wife, the Bible says submit to one another out of reverence of Christ. I'm going to make this a series. I'm not going to try to squeeze all this inspiration into one message. We're going to stretch this thing out, amen? It only takes one decision, good or bad. To change the course of your life. For Adam and Eve, it only took one act of disobedience to change all of mankind. Let's look at that. Open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. For those of you who have your Bible apps, just type it right on in. That's what I'm doing. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to start reading in verse 1. Now here we already know, you know, previous chapters, we see that God created everything. The world, he created the oceans, all the animals, then he created Adam. And he puts Adam in this beautiful lush garden, and he only gave Adam one job. Just take care of everything. Just take care of the garden. Just, just, Just be a caretaker. And he had an easy job. He was naming animals, whatever he wanted. God let him name the animals. I mean, think about that, right? Like, that would be an awesome job. God just said, hey, you know what? I'm going to give you all this. Just do what you want. You know, and, and he told him just one thing. He said, just don't, don't, that tree in the middle of the garden, just stay away from that tree. All right? But everything else is yours. Everything else is yours. And so we pick up here after God created Adam 
God created the animals. He also created a woman out of Adam's rib because he didn't want Adam to be alone. So you think two heads are better than one, right? Let's pick up the story here, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now, in fact, God did not actually say don't touch it. He just said don't eat from the fruit of the tree. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate. She also gave some to her husband. This is where, I, this is the one part I wish wasn't in the story. Who was with her? You know, as a husband, I was kind of counting on the fact that, you know, I had a little ace in the hole, so when my wife sometimes get a little out of pocket, I'd be like, you know, Eve was the one who kind of led us down this road in the first place. But God made sure that we knew that Adam was right there with her. And what did he do? Woman, didn't you hear what the Lord said? He ate it. He probably was like, oh, what's that? <laughs> then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Isn't that the first thing we do when we blow it? We want to hide. We want to we go into hiding. We want to cut everybody off. We want to avoid going towards God because we feel so bad about our sin. And God is calling out to some of us, where are you? God doesn't want us to run away from him. God is like, no, I want you to come to me. Stop hiding. It's a little message right there. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here, this is what we do, right? The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree to eat and I ate it. Threw his wife right under the bus. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The blame-shifting game. Nobody's taking responsibility for what just happened. It only took one couple to bring about the fall of mankind. That's not something you want on your resume. And as a result, we're all prone to sinful thoughts and behavior. I mean, you think about, had they just obeyed we wouldn't have to worry about what we were wearing to church on Sunday. You'd have to worry about, you know, 
whether or not, you know, is this healthy or organic? Because everything would be. That decision impacted so much of our world and our society and the way you and I think and treat each other. One act of disobedience. They had one command to obey, not ten. One. And they had only been alive for a few days, so it wasn't like they had this long history of drug abuse or they had this long history of sexual morality because sometimes I think we think that Jesus only applies to those people like that. Drug dealers and bad people and people that go around sleeping with each other and, and all that. I don't need to change because of that. But they only did one thing. You disobeyed God once, you're guilty just like a murderer. A liar. Sexy moral, you're not exempt because you didn't live that kind of life. Adam and Eve is only alive for less than a week. And this is what happens. You know, the first man without any other influence other than the serpent, if they could fall within a week, what does that say about us? With all the influences around us on the way to church, during church, on our way outside from church. I mean, think about that. They only had one influence. We're surrounded by negative influence. And you mean to tell me that we don't need God? We don't need Jesus every day? See, Simply because they did not trust God and his word, it led to disobedience. Now, we listen to those that we trust. It's simply as that. Simple as, simple as put. We listen to the people we trust. We listen to the authorities we trust. Those we don't trust, we give ourselves the freedom and the license to disobey. You don't, if I don't trust you, I don't have to do what you say. You see that with our kids. Now, your kids may obey you because you're, you're their parents, but if another adult says, hey, can you stop that? You ain't my mother. Isn't that the first thing they say? You're not my father. But do you even listen to your mother and your father? It's another story. It's another sermon right there. See, I'm blowing all these different sermons. We obey those we trust. God was trying to build trust. In Adam and Eve, by giving them a simple command, they failed the test. See, when God gives us commands, it's not to rule over your life and to keep you from doing the things you want to do and the fun you want to have. God is trying to build trust. He's trying to show you that you can trust me. I have your best interests at heart. And had Adam and Eve waited, who knows? Maybe God would have walked them into the middle of the garden and say, hey, let's share this fruit together because there's a whole lot you don't understand right now that I want to teach you. If they had just waited, who knows what God would have done? You see, what I believe is that disobedience is an issue of misplaced trust. Misplaced trust. Eve put her trust in the serpent's deceptive words instead of God. 
And God only gave her one thing to do. The serpent twisted what God said. And right here it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good, and what did he do? He deceived her, but he used her own curiosity and desires against her. It says that the serpent was crafty. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. But you notice that serpent never told Eve to eat the fruit. He just convinced her to. He just set it up. He just led her and, and aroused her curiosity just the way he does with us. Satan doesn't just blatantly come out and say, slap that woman in the face. Or push that man to the side and grab that seat for yourself. No, no, no. Satan is a little, he's more crafty. Than, you've been waiting for a seat on this platform for 45 minutes. The next seat that's available, you run to that seat and you, look, what are you going to do? Are you going to let somebody else get that seat? You've been on your feet all day. You deserve a seat too. And soon as the door, before we even get on the train, you're like, people pressed up against the door. Can we let the people off the train first? And they're like, and soon as the door opens, what do we do? He makes you feel like you deserve it. You go ahead and get that. Don't you deserve to have nice things? Man, so what you spent $50 on the lottery? The next $10, I guarantee you're going to get some. And that money we, should put, we, should, we know we should use for something else. We went, we spent it because Satan just whispered in our ear. You deserve to live nice too. He doesn't always come, blatant, come right out and say it. You know, we live in a needed now society. A can't wait culture. Just yesterday, a bunch of the families... We went apple picking. We took, you know, the preteen family. We got together. We went, and we went apple picking. And let me just say this. I don't do a whole lot of promoting other than my, my sports teams because, you know, that's, I don't have a whole lot in life to look, look forward to except the Knicks championship. But, uh, you know, and going to heaven and seeing my kids baptized. But outside of all that, you know, we go apple picking. There's this orchard called Weeds Orchard. And their apple cider donuts will make you emotional. We, you know, we took Jaden Harvey with us. It was my daughter. It was my wife and I. And we sat down at the car and we just had an emotional time. I think we were even confessing secrets to each other. We were sitting there eating on them donuts and just crying. I, I felt like I wanted to cry. You ever had food that good? And when it's... Fresh out the, I mean, the bag was sweating. It was so warm. And we're sitting there, and we're just talking and just, I love you, man. You know, it's like, and so we're, we're, you were at this orchard, right? And when you, before you go, and if you ever been apple picking, they tell you which apples are available to pick. And so my favorite apples are Macintosh. I love Red Delicious. I mean, Red Delicious apples. I love Red Delicious apples, right? That was one that was crossed off the list as not ready. I'm like, so what am I here for? All right, so the experience, amen, yeah, 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 amen. I'm here for the experience. But I want my red delicious apples. So I'm like, all right, well, I like to bake, so maybe that Granny Smith's crossed off the list. And I'm 
like, what is going on here? Not ready. And so we saw a sign like this. This was a sign that was posted, one of the trees. Now, now, as you can see, there are apples on the floor. I'm thinking if that tree isn't ready, then I don't know what ready is. I mean, you got tree, you got apples falling off the tree, and right away the temptation, James. Does that really look like it's not ready? Do they really mean for you to not go up there and take one of those apples? I mean, you 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 about to pay thirty something dollars a bag, but go on, get you some apples. They're falling on the floor. Look at they wasted. And I'm having this eternal convers- internal conversation with myself. And then you see the sign, not ready. So my wife asked me, so when will it be? Oh, uh, about a month or so, you know, a few weeks. from. And I'm like, I don't want to, I'm not going to come back up here. I want them now. And we, we, we wrestle, we deal with things like that. And maybe God is telling you there's a little sign right up in that, that thing you want so badly, and God is like, not ready. But you're like, no, God, I want it now. You don't understand. I drove an hour and a half up here. I want it now. I don't want to wait for a husband. I've been waiting 15 years. Not ready. Well, Lord, I finally got my husband. You know, we, we, he got a job, praise Jesus, and, and now he's ready for some kids. Now we ready. We want to have some kids. Not ready. But Lord, you just gave me the promotion and the job. You finally, I finally got it. I, I, I did the right thing. I obeyed. I didn't compromise. And I, I, I want to buy this house. I see one on the market. God is beautiful. We can have everybody. We can have Bible talk. We can have house church. We can have baptism. We can have fundraisers. We can have... Not ready. And we think that we know better than God. Eve thought she knew better. And Adam right there, he thought, no, we're we're ready. And see, that's what Satan does. Is he misplaces our trust. Instead of trusting in God's commands and God's words, what God knows better, we put our trust in deceptive words. Have you ever thought, how did the serpent know that that would happen. Where did his knowledge come from? You ever stop to ask yourself that question? I mean, so how, how did he know? Adam and Eve was the first man and woman. It wasn't even before them, so how did he know what they would know and what would happen? Truth of the matter is, he didn't. See, God is all-knowing. Satan is not. Satan can only trick us into thinking that he knows everything and he has all the answers and tries to convince us that we have it all figured out. But God has our best interests at heart. We need only put our trust in him. Imagine the consequences we would have avoided if Adam and Eve had just trusted in the Lord. How about you? Where is your trust this morning? Do you put your trust in the wrong thing and the wrong people? Are you dealing with consequences of disobedience because you decided not to trust the Lord? One act of disobedience can have consequences that outlive you and impact your children. See, disobedience is a matter of the heart, not a matter of behavior. 
Sometimes we try to address the behavior to change and get someone to obey. You got to deal with the heart. You got to deal with the heart. See, Adam and Eve started off with this relationship with God, and there was some mistrust there. They hadn't built the trust yet, which is what God was trying to do by giving them that command. If your trust is misplaced, do you have to build it by trusting God one promise at a time, one verse at a time? Decide, I'm going to put my trust in God's word. I don't need to know the how, the when, the if, and the, I just need, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. And you decide to trust God, amen? God knows that we will obey those we trust. And the better you know God, the more you'll trust God. That's why we got to spend time in our word. We got to spend time being quiet in prayer, listening to God. Before we make decisions, praying and asking God, speak to me, lead me, give me people that will help guide me to make the best decision. Not the right now decision. I want your perfect will, not your permissible will. See, the goal is not just spiritual knowledge. It's spiritual maturity. God wants us to grow. The serpent offered a shortcut to maturity, but there are no shortcuts to growing up in Christ. He promised that you'll know knowledge. You'll get wisdom if you just eat it. No, we have to allow God to develop us and mature us through obedience. You know, disobedience is also, it's also misguided truth. The serpent said, you will not surely die. Where is his knowledge coming from? That's what I asked. You know, when truth is misguided, that means that we're not confident that God is the only way. In the back of our mind, we're thinking that there's got to be some other way. And that's basically what the serpent is doing. He says, no, 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 no. There's another way. There's another way. See, when you trust God and your confidence in God, you know there's no other way but God. There is no other way. And we think that other options, probably even better alternatives, are out there compared to the Bible. We think that, no, that they're all, you know, I've heard this person and, and he sounds pretty well versed in this and, and she's, I watched her TED talk and, and I was very convinced that she knows what she's talking about. But are they building your trust in God or are they pulling you further away from God? Are they making you more confident about your own decisions compared to trusting God? Now, I'm not saying that you can't make any decisions for yourself because God gives us free will. You don't have to pray and ask God, do I wear the blue shirt or the black shirt? God gave you a brain. What I'm talking about are deeper, long-lasting decisions, things that outweigh you, things that will, will have a greater impact on just the now, the here and now, because we don't know what the future holds, but God does. And so when we're making decisions about our future, we need to decide to trust God. And sometimes truth can, can you know, misguided truth can lead us away from the path that God sets us on. Just like in the garden, we begin to listen to other voices and give them equal value or more than God's word. And in God's truth, 
is no longer exclusive in our lives. The world takes half-truths, wrong ideas, wrong beliefs, superstitions, men's philosophies, and make them equally true to God's word. And people are buying into it. People are buying into it. We're trusting more in these quotes. We're trusting more in these sayings and these philosophies rather than God's truth. And when we can start down that path, that's a path to lead to disobedience. It leads us further away from obeying God's word. You know, the Bible teaches that obedience comes from love. That's what Jesus said in John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you'll obey what I command. It's an act of love. When we obey God, we're saying to God, I love you. You know, it's one thing to say I love God and not obey his word. You love God, you'll obey his commands. You'll obey his word. That's how you show God that you love him. Not just by coming to church on Sundays. Not even by coming to church on midweeks. Not even reading your Bible and praying. But doing what it says. Doing what it says. You know who read, who knew the Bible well in and out? The Pharisees. And they did not obey God. But they knew the verses. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the Torah backwards and forwards. But yet they did not obey. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. It's a difference between hypocrisy and discipleship. See, obedience, when you look at it, obedience is a relationship word. Because love is a motivation towards obedience. Our children obey us because they love us. At least that's the goal. We don't want them to obey us because they fear us. Because eventually they won't fear you. There was a time in my life where my mom stood, she towered over me. But about sixth grade, I'm looking down on my mother. And I'm like, uh... I got a few inches on you now. And by the time I was in middle school, I was really feeling myself because I started dunking a basketball. And I'm like, all right, Mom, you you can't be talking to me like you used to. You start feeling yourself. You start getting all full of yourself thinking that, you know, because you got a few inches now, you, you know. And that's when the obedience really gets tested. Do I obey her because she was bigger than me, because she was stronger than me, or do I obey her because I love her? And it's not only the parents who have to wrestle with that, it's also the children who have to wrestle with that. When I get to a point where I'm able to make decisions on my own, do I still honor my parents? Do I still obey them because I love them, or has that passed? Now, as a parent, we're always going to be in your life to give you advice. That's never going to change. So just stop asking us to stop. Zaliga's parents still give us parenting advice. I'm 45. My wife is, yeah, and so she's actually celebrating a birthday on Tuesday. Amen. So y'all can sing happy birthday to her. Later, later, you know. But... Her parents still give us parenting advice. And I'm like, okay, I have a decision here. I can listen and obey, or I can say, you know what, Pop? I am 45. What do you think God would bless? 
God always blesses obedience. He always blesses obedience. Now, Jesus shows us how to obey. We're going to wrap this up here. Jesus shows us how to obey in Luke chapter 4. You know, Jesus, before he began his ministry, was sent into the desert to be tested. And here's the thing. The Bible says it was the Holy Spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness. Now, that really challenges a lot of how we think God trains us. Sometimes we think, whoa, 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 God would not, God wouldn't allow me to go through this because he loves me. He's my Abba. He's my daddy. He's not going to let me go through anything hard or rough or, or difficult. That's not who he is. It was the Holy Spirit that led Jesus into the desert for 40 days to be tested. By the devil. You see, if it wasn't your own sin that led you into a desert, a wasteland, then you may need to stop and think, is this God's plan for me to be in this situation right now? Because God is always trying to refine our character, shape our faith, deepen our convictions. And so he will allow you and may even lead you into a situation where you will be strengthened. Now, he'll never tempt you. He'll never tempt you to sin. That's Satan's job. But God will lead you. And while you're there, he'll be there to walk with you, direct you, and guide you, and build you up. So that's a freebie right there. Luke chapter 4, verses 3 through 13. So now, the devil said to him, If you're the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. And the devil led him up to a high place and showed him an instant, in an instant, all the kingdoms of the world. He said, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. You know, one of the things that, that jump out to me is probably one of the obvious is that Jesus fought temptation with what? Scripture, right? But you notice the brevity of Jesus' answers? Like, Jesus didn't get into a whole drawn-out conversation with Satan. He didn't have to answer to Satan. He didn't have to have a, 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 a conversation, and, and he didn't have a back and forth with Satan. He quoted Scripture, and he kept it moving. That's a lesson for us. Because I think sometimes we get caught up in conversations with Satan, and he convinces us and talks us out of the, doing the right thing in the first place. He tempts us to lust, and we're like, you know, we quote scripture. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. And then Satan comes right back. You sure? You made that covenant when you were a young Christian. But what about now? Nothing happened. It's just a look. Like, you know what? You're right. I mean, I only just look. I mean, I didn't really touch. I didn't get a number or anything. And, and we get caught up in a conversation. Quote your scripture. Keep it moving. The scripture was used to redirect Jesus was awesome 
at being direct when he was faced with sin. He didn't have to give an answer. He didn't have to explain himself. He dealt with it and he kept it moving. We need to imitate Jesus' faith in God's words. Jesus knew God's word is enough. I don't got to explain my situation to you. I don't need to go back and forth with you. God's word is strong enough. See, Jesus obeyed the Bible even when it came to the cross. Jesus had an opportunity to give up, to make it easy. But he said, how else will the scriptures be fulfilled unless I do it this way? And, you know, sometimes we need to just call on the word of God. We need to trust God because, look, Satan's tactics has not changed since Adam and Eve. Let me show you because you're looking like, Jane, what are you talking about? Jesus tempted Jesus, I mean, Jesus tempted, Satan tempted Jesus the same way he tempted Adam and Eve. Physical needs and desires in verse 3. He was tempting Jesus to take a shortcut, just like he did with Adam and Eve. Possessions and power. What did he promise Adam and Eve? You will be all-knowing like God, right? He promised them that you'll not die, but in fact, that you will benefit. Satan tempted Jesus to build his kingdom on earth. He said, do it this way, the painless way. Why go through the cross? You don't have to do that. Do it this way, and I'll help you do it. Pride. Satan appealed to their pride. He knew that they were curious. He says, look, you eat this fruit, and you will be all-knowing like God himself. He appealed to their pride, just as he would us. You don't need to get advice. You're a grown man. You're a grown woman. You don't need to ask anybody for permission. You do what you want. You got yourself this far. You don't even need to read those scriptures. You got a few scriptures under your belt. The Bible, when's the last time the Bible helped you anyway? And here's the thing. But the Satan will use scriptures to get you to disobey God. Ain't that something? The very thing we're called to rely on, Satan can use to get you to sin. And you're like, James, how in the world is that possible? Well, look at how he tempted Jesus. He quoted Psalm 91 to Jesus. Y'all don't think Satan has his quiet times? If he's having his quiet times, what does that say about us? He quoting scripture. Psalm 91. He wanted to get Jesus to use his powers to use his abilities to meet his own needs. And you might be thinking, well, James, how could that even work with me? Well, think about it. When you take, take matters into your own hands and you use scripture to judge, well, the Bible says an eye for an eye. So I'm justified. It's biblical. They did this to me. I can do that to them. We take scripture out of context to justify our actions. We got to look at the Bible in context. That's what Jesus did. He chose scriptures that would shut Satan down. Shut him down. We need to know our Bible because I'm telling you right now, the enemy knows your weapon. If your enemy knows your weapon better than you, he can use it against you. They teach that in martial arts. They teach you how to use, in Taekwondo, they teach you how to use your opponent's force against him. And that's what Satan does. So when we 
We're looking at scripture, and we don't, we don't know our Bibles well enough. Satan can use those very scriptures. The Bible says you need a Sabbath. So don't go anywhere, and don't do anything. <laughs> and right there, we put all of our faith. Well, that's it. No church, no Bible, no work, no call, nobody. Leave me alone. I'm, I'm the Sabbath. Jesus did miracles on the Sabbath. Jesus helped people the Sabbath. Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I trump the Sabbath. That's what the Bible says when you look at it in context. And, you know, I think we can also use it the opposite way. The Bible is meant to be used as a sword, not as a hammer. Let there be no, no hint, not even a hint of impurity. And sometimes some of us super religious, we can take that scripture and we like, don't even call them. That's a hint. You sit next to them, that's a hint. What were y'all doing in that corner talking? That's a hint. We could take the scriptures and add on to it, just like Eve did when she said, the Lord said not to touch. God didn't say that. Don't add on to God's word what he didn't intend for it to mean. God's word is good enough just as it is. It only takes one act of disobedience to set our course, our life on a course of destruction. But here's the thing. It only takes one act of obedience to set everything right. In Romans chapter 5, verse 18, in the plane is landing, Romans 5, verse 18, it says, Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Jesus' act of obedience resulted in many being right with God. Peter's obedience led to the salvation of 3,000, which later grew to a number of 5,000. The obedience of the Jerusalem disciples led to the salvation of large numbers of priests who once stood against Jesus. Philip obeyed the Spirit, which led to the Ethiopian eunuch being saved in Acts 8. Paul obeyed Jesus on the road to Damascus which led to many churches being planted, the Gentiles receiving salvation, the New Testament letters that we have written by Paul, and many, many acts of of spiritual uh, uh, obedience, all because these men and women decided to obey and trust God. It only takes one. And I'm here today. I'm here today because of one man's obedience to the Spirit to extend one invitation, one time. To one person, I'm here today, you're here today, because of one person's obedience, maybe several, but it took one time, one obedience. That's all it takes for us to set our lives on a course of godliness and blessings. It only takes one. It only takes one because he obeyed. We are here today. It only takes one. Which will you choose? Will you choose to obey or will you choose to disobey? To God be the glory.